wonder if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm going to ask you a strange favor. To, if you're a note taker, go ahead, take notes. I'm not going to ask you not to. But I'm asking you to listen with your heart today. I'm going to throw a lot of things at you. And I'm going to throw a lot of teaching at you. And we're going to read a lot of scripture because we're touching on communion. If you didn't notice this big table over here. And we're touching on it because I want to bring some clarity to it. I want to bring some freedom to it. My goal is to remove the religiousness around certain things in the body of Christ. The Bible says, whatever you do, if it's not a faith, it's sin. And there's, there's many things that we do. We just go through the motions, but there's actually no faith involved. And one of the things that I think God has called me to personally is to take something that everybody, you know, we've always done it, but they've forgotten the why. They've forgotten the actual truth and put truth back so that it puts power back. Religion, in a sense, not a religion. Religion is form without power. It's a, it's a structure with no life in it. That's what it is. And so that is the passion of my heart, to destroy that and see life come back because he made a payment. So we're touching on communion today. And so I want to remove the religiousness around it. And I also want to take it from being something that is serious and introspective and actually make it, it's supposed to be a grateful celebrational feast. That's what it used to be. It's truth. Justo L. Gonzalez, a Cuban church historian, one of the best there is, he writes in, he's got a, three volumes. I mean, they're massive. I didn't read all of it, but I read some, a lot of it. And he quotes the actual date that he, in his words, he says, this is the date that communion went from a celebratory meal to a funeral service. He says that. He says, and it's never recovered. So we're going to look at some things today. So I'm going to throw a lot at you. Please, you don't have to remember all of this. I'm just giving you a lot of teachings so we can have an understanding of faith. We good? So, don't try to remember it all, but it's good to see. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as wise men, just a quick thing for those scholars in, the, in our midst. Go to a New Testament study on what the Bible says to flee from. It's very fascinating. There are some things that we always think, I've got to fight. The Bible says, don't fight, ignore it, run away. Some things, if you fight, they win. That's for free. Go to, in the New Testament, go have a look. There's four or five. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. Speaking about the church. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel. He's saying, let's look at Israel as an example. After the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Do not they become one with that altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? In a sense, no. Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice to sacrifice to demons and not to God. He's talking about pagan sacrifices, just in case there's confusion there. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? saying you really want to arouse the Lord's anger because you think if he gets angry you'll be okay and anger is the wrong word because he's, he's sworn in Isaiah 54 he wouldn't get angry with us now what he's actually saying here is they were taking they were joining themselves to the Lord in communion they were joining themselves to the Lord and now that they're joined to the Lord now they go and join themselves because they were these were Gentiles the Corinthians and the Corinth there's a lot of history there but they desperately needed salvation, if I'll just put it that way. 
You could think of all the worst words to describe a person, and they actually summarized it in those days and just said he's a Corinthian. He does it all, okay? These guys got saved. They were doing this communion thing, and then they were also still sacrificing to demons. All right? We get that? Now, the word communion, which we'll clarify now, is the word kinonia. It's just the same word in Acts chapter 2 when it says they were devoted themselves to fellowship. You remember that verse? To the fellowship. It's covenant fellowship. It's deep community. It's, uh, what else is it? I wrote it down. Joint participation, intimacy. It's even used of intercourse. It's fellowship within a covenant. That's why it's used of intercourse. That's why it says it's communion. So when it says communion, we think this. We think that is communion. In the Bible, it just means fellowship. Means coming, we have communion. But what do we have communion with? People think, well, with Jesus. Yes, we do, obviously. But in this context, it says, do we not have communion with the body and the blood of the Lord? It's interesting. So we actually have fellowship, deep covenant intimacy with the body of Christ, with the blood of Christ. So when you do this, you're in a sense joining yourself to the Lord, even though you're already His. It's a, it's a, a prophetic act, which we'll get into, and you're joining yourself in deep fellowship with the Lord. And then they were running off and doing the same with demons. He's saying, don't join Jesus to demons. Hello? Okay, we're good on that. Most people are not doing this. I don't think anyone in this room is doing this. That's why communion became introspective. It says examine yourselves. What you got. It became introspective and serious for them because they were doing this. You are not doing this. You are not doing this. When it says examine yourself and do all these things which you will get into, it was before this in the early church, it was a celebratory, excited, grateful meal to celebrate a victory in a marriage. That's what it was. Okay, let's go to next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. I'll clarify. Now, in giving 11 verse 17 to 31, if you have a Bible, I encourage you to use it. I love hearing pages. It's rare these days, but it's great. In giving these instructions, I do not praise you. That's nice. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Imagine someone writing that, an apostle writing to the church, to us. When you guys come together, it's just worse. You just make things worse. I mean, imagine that's what he says. He says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions for those that those who are approved may be recognized among you. You know what he's actually saying in the Aramaic there and in the Greek? He's saying that the mature don't get offended, and those who are not mature still do. Whoa. He says, and so now there's factions. He couldn't actually believe that there was, there was such unity in the body of Christ that he started to hear of this church that had factions, and he's like, what's going on? Imagine how the apostles would think of the modern-day church. Oh, boy. So, but we're excited. So, verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. That does not mean we cannot have communion. This is what it means. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Don't you like the what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's saying, what you guys are doing when you come together, that's not the Lord's Supper. You've, you've missed it. Because they took this feast and they say, oh, feast. We know feasts, pagans. We know feasts. Great. Feast to celebrate Him. Great. We're going to have another feast, and that's in the name of Jesus. And then we'll have another feast in, in the name of someone else. And that's the Lord's Supper, and, and that's the, someone, someone else's supper. 
Okay? That's what they were doing. And he's like, that's not the Lord's Supper. You've, you've missed it. Okay. He says, do you not have houses? And then what they were doing, some would get drunk because it was wine, right? So they would get drunk. And others would arrive that haven't eaten yet for the Lord's Supper. And there were people that are full, finished eating and drunk. And, and he was like, guys, this is not really what the Lord instituted. Okay? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Because, you know, there was a poverty issue in Corinth. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Nice and clear. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night, very important, same night, in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remembrance actually there does not mean in memory of. It actually means an affectionate calling to mind of the actual person. It doesn't just mean I remember. Okay? It's a calling to someone to mind affectionately. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Very important. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that scripture has caused it to become very serious. That one right there. Do you understand the context now, though? Look what they were doing. You're not doing that. I hope. If you are, stop. Okay? <laughs> Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Why? Because he's joining the Lord to this other thing. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Every single time the word body is mentioned, it's talking about what? His physical body and his blood, right? And there it says you don't discern the Lord's body. And they said that time it means the body of Christ. So you have to make sure in your heart that there's nothing against anyone else. Actually, it just means his body. It's still talking about his physical body, the payment made. So what we've done is we've said, okay, well, I'm going to get very serious and very introspective, sin conscious. I'm going to look in and deep. And I'm going to make sure that there's nothing in my heart against anyone. I'm going to approach something that used to be a grateful celebration, a proclamation of victory, and make it serious and sad. And, and I'm a little bit afraid of it. Okay. Can we change this? All right. Wonderful. A few points, quickly. He says, I received from the Lord. Paul was known to have ascended in a sense into realms where the Lord revealed stuff to him that he wasn't allowed to say. He wasn't told this by other people. It says, I received this from the Lord himself. If I had an experience where God caught me up, everything he tells me is important. That makes this important. Makes it extremely important that the Lord would actually tell it to me. He said, I received from the Lord. Then he says, take, eat. This is my body. Actually, sorry, we're going to go back. When it says he has given thanks, who's heard it called the Eucharist? Okay, I'm not trying to offend. That's great. You can call it that. That phrase, given thanks, is just the word Eucharisto in the Greek. That's where they get the word Eucharist. 
It simply means to be grateful, to feel thankful, to be mindful of favor, and that's actually favor that we receive because of the merits of another. It just means to be grateful because it was a grateful, happy celebration. It was not, it was not to just be thankful for the food when you say grace. Please hear me. Jesus didn't pay that price with his body so that we could be grateful for food. He paid the price with his body so that we could be healed and to prove that he was the Messiah because there were Old Testament promises about his, what his death would look like, that his bones wouldn't be broken, all things that he could not fulfill on his own because people had to do it to him. And he fulfilled every single one as proof that he is the Messiah and that by his stripes we were healed 2,000 years ago. That's why his body was broken. It's not just so that we can be thankful for the food. We are grateful for the food. Friends, it's so much more than that. So much more. So much more. In the Jewish culture, the, the children's bread in the Bible, the children's bread, when Jesus said the children's bread, I do not give children's bread, it is actually in reference to healing and deliverance from demons. Physical healing and deliverance. This here, the Eucharist, the body, his body that was broken, makes the children's bread available to all believers. That's what he's saying. Are you still with me? Wonderful. When he says, take, eat, this is my body, in 1 Corinthians, take, eat, this is my body which is broken. The actual the words take, the word eat, and broken are not there in the original. It says, this is my body which is for you. However, in Luke 22, when, when they give the, the record of it, the word take, and eat is all there. You know what the word take is? Is lombano. Lombano is the same word in Acts 1.8 1, when you will receive power. It's the word receive. You will receive power when he that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Freely you have received, freely give. It also is the word in Matthew 8, verse 16 and 17, which quotes Isaiah 53, when it says, he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. That word took, same word, lambana. It's receive. What he's saying is, I received in myself. He himself took. I received in myself. I took that. So take, receive. Now you take, the same word. You take the payment that I'm making, which is healing. Same word. Take, receive what I'm offering you. He received in himself our weakness and sickness so we could receive what his body won. Friends, for this he has given us communion. Then it says this, when you take it, whenever you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The till he comes just tells you that he's, it's not, he's not still dead. A, a dead person doesn't come back. So it's, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection. You proclaim what he won. It says proclaim, which is also the word for preach. How do you proclaim something with an action? That's interesting. You proclaim, but hold on, I'm not, it's an action. You know that the devil, he can only counterfeit, right? There's a power in ritual. I come from Africa. I grew up in a home of parents who did a lot of deliverance. And 
There's incredible power in ritual. If you've seen the rituals that witches and the occult and witch doctors and stuff, if you find out when you're praying for someone, a child went through a ritual, it has power over them for many, many years. Okay? There is power in ritual, but it's just a counterfeit, and we're all afraid of that. Naaman the Syrian, go dip yourself in the river seven times. The obedience, the, the actual obedience, the physical response, the physical obedience. You've heard me say this many times. Physical obedience, spiritual release, baptism. Physical obedience, spiritual release. All through the Bible, physical things, supernatural, spiritual release. This is that. Everything else is shadows and games. All that other stuff. It's counterfeit of this. It has tremendous power if we understand and if we understand it with faith. Otherwise, it's just a tradition. Empty religious tradition. Huh. Physical obedience brings spiritual release. The Lord has given us something to do physically to release spiritual power. Everything that your faith can always be released two ways. Through something said, the power of words. We don't have to talk about that. You all know that. And the power of action. That's why sometimes when we say, why don't you step out into the aisle? Why don't you raise your hand? Why? why? Because there's an obedient response and something happens. And every time the physical, some, there's a physical reaction, you know what happens? It's partly a little bit of death to flesh. Because you're like, oh, yeah, I don't want people. Yeah, who cares? Do. Be obedient. And spiritual is released. But if we don't understand what it's done, not so much. The passion there says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are retelling the story. I like that. Proclaiming the Lord's death. So, with uh, 30 minutes I have left, I'm going to try to do this in 20. I want to simply tell you the story of communion as they would have heard it as Jewish people. I wanted to clarify 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 because that's what makes it so different for so many. So I wanted to bring some clarity. Matthew 26. Remember the beginning of the year we said the church needs to rediscover the gospel? What was one of the points there? We needed to rediscover the clarity of the gospel. I want to bring clarity concerning this. The Lord has put it in my heart. I've wanted to do this for a long time. Uh, I just waited on the Lord. And we're actually going to have from now on, from today, we're going to have this over there all the time. Friends, you do not need someone to serve it to you. Please. Nowhere in the Bible. You can take it if you're a believer. If, you do, if you're not, I would advise you not to. But it's going to be over there, and it's not going to be, it's going to be in the little cups. Because, friends, with these two things, I don't know how else to, with these two here, there is nothing that wasn't covered. Nothing. It covered everything. Everything. There was nothing that wasn't broken. There was nothing that wasn't destroyed of the enemy. There was nothing that, it, it covers it all. Just these two things. And he's given us a prophetic act that we can do that releases that power and again and again and you don't do it once you can do it as often as you want it's nothing that's not covered so we're going to have it here available for people whenever they want
So, Matthew 26 says this, verse 26 to 29. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave thanks to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. There's the words, take and eat. He, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So much that we've just read. we just read three verses. There's things that are happening there that if you were Jewish, you would understand. We have Debbie. She might know. I don't know. She's, she's not that old. This is a long time ago. But... <laughs> But it's things that, that, that if we understood what they understood, friends, it would mean so much more. It's only three verses. What were they doing? They were eating a Passover meal, yeah? They were eating a Passover meal, and then he did this. So, if you could stretch your hearts again, now we're going to go look at Passover. It's a hermeneutical principle, the law first mentioned. Exodus chapter 12. I don't want to lose you. I said I'm going to throw a lot at you today but I want to show you what was happening, what they understood as Jewish people. You still with me? I'm excited. I genuinely believe that today that we will see people probably get healed. It may not be instant, but sometimes in the next few days, uh, we're going to see God begin to bring revelation back to a group of people as what this carries. The Passover, as we know, is when the Lord passed over Egypt. Let's go to Exodus 11, verse 4. This is what it was. He says, Exodus 11, 4, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go, that's the Lord, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handle, and all the firstborn animals. That's what he was going to do. So Exodus 12, 1, he says this, now we're going to read 13 verses. Can you do it? Can we do it? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be the beginning, your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all of the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, um, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it. And according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make. In other words, they had to eat everything. Two little people in one house to finish the meal. Get two households, put them together. Okay? Very simple. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish a male of the first year. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats. Verse 6. Now you shall keep it from the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Jesus was crucified at twilight. Interesting. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, and they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw. And then he gives some explanations. Let none of it remain. Let's go to verse 11. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist. That's truth. Huh? The belt on your waist, truth, which brings freedom. Sandals on your feet, that's the gospel. Okay? And the staff in your hand, shepherd's crook, and that's the sword of the Lord. And so you shall eat it in haste, with an urgency, ready to leave, ready to go out into the world. 
It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will make the firstborn in the, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What does he look for? Blood. Okay? And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I shall strike the land of Egypt. Can you throw up the next slide, please? The Passover points, commemorates, it points back at what God did for them. When they were taking Passover in Matthew 26, it, every time they took Passover, it points back to the deliverance from Egypt, and it pointed towards the coming Messiah. Okay? Communion does the same thing. Differently. It points back to the cross, the victory, and it points toward that there's a king who's coming back. It says, proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. We make it about us. He says, it's about the cross, and then I'm coming back. Okay? When he comes, please hear me, there shall be another Passover. It was not called that, but that is what's going to happen. The Lord will come again, and he will pass over Egypt, which represents the world, and he will look for blood. Wherever there is no blood, death will hold that person forever. Where there is, it will not. It's the same thing again. It is going to happen again. He says about the firstborn. I'm I just trying to bring some revelation for us. The firstborn, that's very interesting. The sacrificed lamb was the substitute for the firstborn child, yeah? Okay. What does that mean for us? It's actually marvelous. You have a nature. You have the sin nature. That's your firstborn nature. When you get born again, that's your second nature, yeah? We speak about it a lot. The firstborn nature requires a sacrifice so that death does not hold you. Hello? Yeah. That's what it's pointing to. Your firstborn nature, your sin nature, the way you're born under Adam on the earth, requires a blood sacrifice so that you are not held by death when that other Passover comes. Then he says this. Let me actually say it like this. Communion should remind you, should remind you, that death is not going to hold you. Christians don't think anymore about his return. They think about their life. They think about just uh, us. This is a reminder that he is coming and you're never going to die. You'll die physically. But this, because of this, death won't hold you. That's, a, that's good news. That's exciting. That's not serious. That's actually quite good news. Okay. So, then he says this. This points to grace. The lamb shall be without blemish. Without blemish. Very interesting. The lamb had to be with them for four days in the house. Imagine that little child. Little lamb, holding little lamb. Yeah, yeah, four days time. You know, that's what was happening. The time when Jesus had triumphal entry, when he declared himself as the Messiah, to when he was crucified, four days. He was with them for that period for four days, the lamb. 
how carefully would you inspect a lamb if your child was on the line? Think about that. If your child was on the line, how carefully would you inspect that lamb? The point is, friends, is that the lamb was what was inspected, not the people. It's pointing to grace. The people could be doing anything they wanted in the house. They could be fighting. They could be doing things that maybe they shouldn't. They could be doing things maybe they should. Whatever they were doing was irrelevant. The lamb was inspected. Once the lamb was inspected, the blood was put on. That's all he looked for. It was a law to them. It points to grace for us. We don't know what they were doing in the house. I just know they were not inspected. Saving their children based on the merits of this lamb. Freedom from slavery from Egypt based on the merits of the lamb. Favor, they became wealthy with Egypt's wealth based on the merits of this lamb. <laughs> the lamb had to be born pure. That points to virgin birth. Hello? Do you see it? It's amazing. The lamb had to be born pure, but it could become defective. That's why when I preached in a while, they would wrap it in cloth. Because it could hurt itself and then it was, now has a blemish. It could become defective, but it was born pure. He was just like us, tempted in every way, just as we, but was without sin. Same thing. It's amazing. Everyone in the house was saved because the sacrifice was sufficient. Jesus has been inspected, not you. He is your lamb. When he comes, that's what he's going to look for. Blood, not you. He's been inspected, and he's been found worthy. That's called grace. That's good news. Favor, based on the merits of another. Freedom from slavery, from Egypt, the world, and sin based on the merits of another. The wealth of Egypt, based on the merits of another. Hear me, church. It, it's good news. Then he says, and then we'll move on. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the basin. What does hyssop mean? Hyssop represents faith. They had to apply the blood to the doorpost. The blood was in the basin, okay? The blood was in a big basin in, the, in, in verse 22. It says it. The blood was in the basin in the little house, okay? All the power of that blood was in that basin. It meant nothing if it wasn't put on the doorpost and the lintels. And the angel, he looked at those things. He didn't look inside. It meant nothing. So they said, take hyssop. Why hyssop? It represents faith. By faith, we apply the blood of Jesus, yeah? Okay. You know why it's supposed to be hyssop? Because it's the easiest thing to find. It grows everywhere. Literally, it's a little weed. It grows in between bricks and out of the cobblestones and, I mean, everywhere. People have this concept of faith is so hard. It was the easiest thing to find. It says, take that and apply it to the doorposts. The church has the blood in the basin. We are what? The household of God, yeah? We cannot afford to leave the blood in the basin. We've applied it to us, yes, but there's an entire city out there and the Lord is crying out, don't leave my blood in the basin. It's in the house. You have it. Apply it everywhere and on everyone that will take it. Because 
the lamb has been shed. Jesus has been slain. The, the blood is poured out. It's lying in a basin. Yeah, we are called to apply it on everything that we can so that when he passes over again, the most people that we have blood, we have it in a basin. has all its power right here in the gospel. Now, back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26 to 30, we read it. When Jesus and the Lord's Supper. I'm going to very quickly, I don't expect you to remember this. I know it's a lot. I want to show you one more thing, and then we're going to take communion. Can you bear it? I'm going to show you the process of a Jewish wedding. The process of a Jewish wedding. It's so powerful. Jesus, in Matthew 26 or Luke 22, when he's doing this communion, this was a Passover meal, when he says, uh, this is the blood of the new covenant, he changes it to something else. He changes it to a Jewish wedding betrothal ceremony. It's actually betrothal, the wedding came later. He changes it to something called a shikadin, which I'll, sh I'll show you. It's a betrothal ceremony. As Jewish people, they would have known that. Okay. Betrothal, shikadin, that means betrothal. The Jewish betrothal will happen one year before the wedding. They would get betrothed. It was a whole big ceremony. It was extremely serious. Not like we do engagement. Okay, it was not like that. It was betrothal. It needed, it required a, a divorce according to the law of Moses to break it. It's not like we do engagement. Yes, no, okay, no, I changed my mind. No, not like that. It was like marriage. And then the husband would leave and go away for a year and have to fulfill a bunch of obligations and then he would come back, okay? Greg talked about this a little bit last week. This is what's happening here and I want to show you this and then we're going to take that. And that's exciting. Before the actual betrothal, there would be something called just arrangement to the betrothal and this would include the practice of the father selecting the bride. The father selects the bride for the son. You know that? In this process. Abraham selected the bride for Isaac. Ephesians 1 actually says it. It says that the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, has chosen you in the beloved. He chose you as the bride. The Father chose you. <laughs> Hello? He chose you as a bride for his son. Then you, they would go through the marriage contract, which is called the ketubah. This includes all the provisions and the conditions of a proposed marriage. The groom promises to support his wife-to-be and to pay what they call the bride price, and the bride stipulates the contents of a dowry. This is what I'm bringing, okay? And then, and I'll explain it, then you have something called the muhar, which is the bridal payment. That is once the bride price has been agreed on, it's now paid by the groom. All right? And it's given to the bride's whole family, but it belongs to the bride, but she only receives it fully at the wedding. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Then they would have to separate them after these agreements, and they would go through what they call the waters of mikvah, where they would be separately, in a sense, baptized, the way we would say it, ritually, ritually, that's the word, oh, it's a good word, ritually immersed and pulled out, and then they would come together under something called a huppah. So, we too were selected by the Father to be his beloved bride's son, Ephesians 1.4. We have a marriage contract, ketubah. It's the new covenant. Okay? The groom paid the bride, the bride price, the mohar. The groom only can pay that. And he paid it with his life. Okay? With his life, with his blood. He paid it. And fully, it'll be fully realized when? When he comes back at the wedding. That's when the price will be fully realized. Okay? We are given our lives. Our diary is to we give our life to Him and we keep ourselves separate 
for him. Okay? The waters of mikvah happen separately. Jesus baptized by John the Baptist, you when you get saved. The bride and the groom baptized separate. So that happens. Then they come together under something called a hoopah, which is a canopy. It represents something, an actual canopy. It represents that there's a new house coming. That's actually what it represents. Okay? It's very, very interesting. After they had gone through that, they would come together, they would go through the hoopah, and it represented that there was a new house that was going to come that the, the groom had to go and build, and it was required to be better than the house she came from. What did Jesus say in John 14? I go to prepare a house for you, but do not be afraid, I'm coming back, and I will receive you then to myself. Everything that Jesus says in John 13 to 14 is everything, and it's, it talks about the, the Holy Spirit and it talks about the house, is, covers the same topics that a groom would say to the bride after the betrothal period. As Jewish people understood that. Then the betrothal, as I said, was binding. You know there was only one way to break a betrothal, as I said, through a divorce. Who was allowed to make the divorce? Only the husband. According to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 24, only the husband was allowed to choose divorce, not the wife. And people today would scream, that's sexist, that's, that's, point, that's silly. It was a shadow of the fact that only Jesus, once you're in him, only he can say no. And he said in Hosea 2, he said, I will choose you as my betrothed forever. I will not betray you. You are safe. Safer than you know. Then, they would do their betrothal vows. Under the kuppah, they would do the vows. They would exchange rings. And then a cup of wine was drank. This is what Jesus is doing in Matthew 26. He's holding a cup of wine, sealing what they called the ketubah, the marriage contract. Friends, in Luke 22, he says, with fervent desire, I have longed to eat this Passover with you. He was not looking forward to the cross. We know that from the Garden of Gethsemane. Why was he so looking forward to that Passover meal? He had had many. All his life he had done it every year. Because this, he knew, was a betrothal celebration. And he changed it. And he said, now we're going to drink according to a new covenant. And they would declare at these places, I will not drink wine until the marriage. And he says that, I will not drink again. He says, I am so excited because I'm getting engaged to my wife today. He was so excited. And just before he left, they're under the hoopah. They've been baptized. They've been all these things. They exchange ring. The cup, the wine, would seal the betrothal. That was it. Now it's done. And after that, there was one more thing. Just before he left, he would give her something called a matan which was the bridal gift. It was a massive gift to show her, to guarantee her that he's coming back. You know what the word maton is in the Greek? The charismata, the gifts of the Spirit. We got given the Holy Spirit. He said, this is the greatest gift I can give you. So just after he drinks the wine, he spends four chapters telling them about this thing that he wants to give his bride. Think about it. He tells her about the gift, and he tells her about the house. That's amazing. Who finds this very interesting? Okay, wonderful. It's not just me. 
That's good to know. And the only person, as Greg said, the only person who could decide when the actual marriage date was is the father of the groom. Jesus said, I do not know the hour. No one knows except the father. No one knows. No one knows except the father. The most important part of all of that for me, and then we're going to take communion, is remember me. He says, please remember me. When I come on the earth, will I find faith? He said that. Remember me. Do this. Remember me. It's likened unto a husband leaving for war. I hope you see that. It's like a husband is going away for a while saying, please don't forget me. Please remember me. He says, I'm coming again. You cannot see me now, but I'm building a house for you. But please remember me. Remember what I've done. You can have fellowship with my body, with my blood, remembering that we're one. You can take and eat, meaning you can receive all the benefits that I paid for because I received all your infirmities and your sicknesses. The bride price has been paid. You are safe. You are forgiven. You can be healed. We are betrothed. I will not betray you. I have been inspected so that you can be free. You are not anyone's slave anymore. So with grateful thanks, that's that word Eucharist, celebrate my victory because death will have no claim on you. And so I leave you with my gift, the Holy Spirit. And I go to prepare a house for you. This Holy Spirit, let me tell you, your bride, he will come and he will, he will come alongside you and he will love you and he will protect you. He will be faithful to me. He will reveal me to you. He will tell you all things that I've told you. He will remind you of the things I've told you. He will tell you that I'm coming back. He will empower you. He will equip you. He will be everything to you. He's the greatest gift I can give. He's the greatest attendant that my bride can have. So please remember me. That's communion. That's communion. Please remember me, he says. Remember me. Remember me. Remember, remember who I am. Remember what I've done.